Welcome, everyone. We're going to do a little practice to begin tonight, and then we'll um, have a discussion, and then I'll give it a little talk about another angle on um, loving-kindness practice and how we can, uh, in a more deep way, understand what gets in the way of a loving heart. So I'll begin with just a few words from the Buddha, and then I'll give some instructions. So feel free to adjust your body so that you feel comfortable during the guided practice. And remember, because the loving-kindness practice, this formal practice is is really an absorption practice. We're training the mind to uh, fully be with the different aspects of the practice, remembering the person, the repetition of the phrases, the feeling of the heart center. So we don't want to be distracted. In normal mindfulness practice, there's nothing that can be a distraction. If there's pain, then we're just mindful of the pain. If there's disturbing sounds, then we just practice being mindful of them. But with more of the absorption practice practices, it's nice to create conditions where the mind's less distracted, at least in the beginning. Um, it just allows the practice to deepen. So do what you can to be comfortable. The Buddha said, just as water cools both good and bad and washes away all impurity and dust, in the same way you should develop thoughts of love to friend and foe alike. And having reached perfection in love, you will attain enlightenment or freedom. So we'll begin our formal loving-kindness practice tonight by doing a forgiveness reflection. And to begin the forgiveness reflection, we understand that it's not easy being a human being. It's not easy having relationships, having a mind that's been conditioned by fear, by greed, neediness. So bringing to mind now somebody that we might have harmed in our lives. And as if we were right there in front of this person, we ask for forgiveness as best we can. It's so easy to act out of fear. So I ask for your forgiveness. Please forgive me for the harm that I've caused. And you may want to repeat this request a couple times.
And of course, if somebody else comes to mind, another situation when you might have harmed somebody, then again, recognizing that it's easy to make mistakes, it's easy to create suffering for ourselves and others. So we ask for forgiveness. bringing to mind anybody who might have harmed us and maybe start with a situation that's not scary that doesn't feel overwhelming and as we remember a particular situation then we try to understand that it's also easy for this person to make mistakes just like we know it's easy to make mistakes it's also easy for others to make mistakes and to harm, create suffering. So in order to free up this heart right here as best I can, I forgive you for any harm that you've caused me. For any phrase or words that help to forgive this person. I understand that you're doing the best you can. So as best I can, I forgive you. And you can just continue to reflect on a particular situation or go ahead and bring other situations to mind and offer forgiveness as best you can.
And then finally, when you feel ready, we take a minute or two to practice forgiving ourselves for the harm we've caused ourselves and the harm that we've caused others. So directly offering ourselves forgiveness, reflecting in a very real way we're doing the best we can. And given the causes and conditions, conditions or the responses we've made in life couldn't have been different than they were. As best I can, I forgive myself for being an imperfect human being. As best I can, I forgive myself for all the harm I've caused myself and all the harm I've caused others. easy to be confused. So as best I can, I forgive myself. And then we begin the formal metta practice by bringing to mind somebody easy to love. And we take some time to remember, to see the good in this person or this being. The proximate cause for a loving heart to arise, to be known, is the capacity to see the good, to see the beautiful or the lovely in this person, in this being. It can be as simple as seeing that this person is doing the best they can or appreciating this person's good heart or moments when this person's good heart was apparent. As we remember the person, notice the heart center. This energetic feeling of wanting to give away our good wish, our good wishes for this person. May you be safe from all harm, protected in all ways. May your heart, may your mind be happy and peaceful. And may your body be healthy, free from pain. May you take care of your life with ease and joy. 
So continue on your own now, working with someone easy. Really devote yourself to the repetition of phrases that are meaningful to you as you remember the person and continue to feel the heart center. And once you've settled on somebody that's easy, it's often good not to keep switching around, but to make the effort to remember this person's goodness or why it is that you care about them. So just start with your very real connection with this person, this being, and let the warmth and the simple generosity of your good wish come out of that connection. Even if it feels a little dry, connect to the meaning of the words. I really do care for your safety. May you be protected. I really do care about your heart. May it be peaceful. I do care about your health. May you have ease in your body, health in your body, and on and on.
tonight, on your own, decide how to move through the other categories, depending on the strength of the practice for you tonight. So if the metta, the feelings of warmth, tenderness is strong, then begin to work with other people or other beings. So not just the easy person, but other good friends or family members, or even neutral people, people you know but don't have particularly strong feelings for one way or another. And as you continue to practice, you can even bring to mind difficult people in your life, if it feels appropriate. not being afraid to make the mind work. And the work here is in remembering a particular being, 
repeating some phrases that make sense for you, that express this simple generosity of the heart, this upwelling of good wishes for this person. So if you haven't yet, you may wish to spend several minutes sending metta loving wishes toward yourself or for yourself. So just adjust the pronoun of the phrase so that it feels like we're directly offering ourselves a good wish of safety or happiness. I always begin by just repeating the phrase, I care about this life. May I be safe in all ways, protected in all ways. May this heart be happy and peaceful. May I live with good health, take care of this life with ease and joy.
and willing to begin again and again. And we'll take the last couple minutes to open our hearts to groups of people. We can begin just with this group in this room. You can even open your eyes slightly looking down toward the floor and just have a sense of the people here. Some people we might recognize or even know well. Probably many others we don't know much at all about. But we do know that everybody here wants to be happy just like we want to be happy. Just see if it's possible for the heart to feel connected, to feel open and loving. May everybody here be safe, protected from all harm. May all beings here, myself included, have happy hearts, peaceful hearts, healthy body, free from pain. And may we take care of our lives with ease and joy. And just filling the room up with our good wishes for one another. Just let it spill over, including the neighbors, the birds, all the squirrels in the trees, and the whole metropolitan area, all these beings here, human beings and non-human beings, all the celestial beings, the angels and devas, all beings on any level seen or unseen, here and far away. May all beings be protected from harm. May all beings be happy and peaceful with good health. And may all beings live with ease, free from suffering. to stretch out. You can even stand for a moment if you'd like. Your legs need a little stretch. So one of the ways we can uh, learn about the practice is just to hear from one another about <clears throat> what gets in the way and what uh, conditions support for you, what conditions support the deepening or the arising of loving, of, of the loving heart. And you can respond to this 
in two ways. And we'll take about 15 minutes to share with one another. You can talk about it in terms of your formal sitting practice, what you're noticing gets in the way, or when it was strong in those moments where it felt strong, what were the supporting conditions, or what was that like, that strength of practice, what was that like for you? And then informally during your day, we talked last week about three characteristics or three angles on this loving heart, the uh, reflecting on non-aversion, reflecting on generosity, and reflecting on the immeasurableness of love or kindness. So when kindness is present, it has an immeasurable quality. So that's what I talked about last week. And uh, for those of you who weren't here, eventually we'll have a MP3. Uh, and maybe it will be, is it going to be on the website, Todd? Yes. Yeah. So it will be eventually on the website for people who missed week one. And you can download the talk. But anyway, you might just reflect on what you've been noticing in terms of those three qualities of reflecting on non-aversion, reflecting on generosity, and reflecting on the immeasurableness of those moments when the heart has some uh, filled with loving kindness or compassion. So any questions or comments about your practice that you'd like to share with the group? What comes to mind? What are you noticing? What's hard? What's easy? Adam? I, I notice um, I feel different when I tend to do a better practice. It's kind of informal and I just kind of let an image of somebody arise and then drama about? Just kind of like I'm trying to build a sustaining kind of a, like I feel like I'm, like if it's someone, like a teacher or something or um, a good friend that I'm trying to continue to really focus on something that's going to kind of keep them seeming good to me and sometimes I have to start going going digging a little bit. Uh Uh-huh. wanted to pursue this because it's probably something that a lot of people experience who are just 
there's uh, some energy at the beginning, and then after several minutes, the energy dissipates. And the question is, you know, what should we do about that? And I think we even talked about this last week. And there's not a specific right or wrong way, but I think one thing that is useful is to sometimes at least stick with it, like don't necessarily change. So maybe that could be one of our homework assignments this week is, for one sit this week, why don't we make a commitment to just use like one or two people the whole set? So you're not thinking, you know, just decide. Because like if you work with yourself the whole set for 30 minutes, let's say, we know that I care about this life. So that actually doesn't change during that 30 minutes. So it's sort of nice just to stick with it. And don't, don't worry so much about the mind complaining or resisting. Because remember, what we're doing with this practice is we're finding our way back. We're cutting through you know, all of the stories, all of the obscurations. We're finding our way back to a very simple, inherent aspect of the heart, the part of the heart, the quality, inherent quality of the heart that cares or that feels connected. And the mind can project a lot of obscuration, like reasons why this isn't good anymore and we need to move on or whatever. And so it's actually really good practice not to be fooled, not to be thrown off by the resistance, the feeling of it being dry, the feeling like we're not connecting. Like not to believe that, to say the phrase anyway. And even if it's not as moist, you know, doesn't have as much punch or energy to it, just to say it anyway. And then it it kind of forces the mind to see, even if it's just a thread of warmth or a thread of like significance in that statement, just to recognize that, that it's almost completely dry, but there's just a, a faint smell that I actually mean this phrase. And that's enough. We just recognize that. And it's and you see that what we're doing is we're developing a particular talent in the mind, which is to recognize the experience of loving kindness. So in a in a funny sort of way, this is a mindfulness practice too, except we're training the mind to be mindful of only one thing, the experience of loving kindness. And to see it no matter the particular state, you know, we're doing something of course. But in that activity, you know, the remembering the person and the repetition of the phrases and the feeling, the heart center. So we are doing this activity, engaging this practice, but the actual experience is going to be all over the place. Sometimes the heart might feel very open and radiant and a lot of upwelling of goodness. And other times it's going to be as hard as a stone, dry, uh, completely numb. But what we're training our mind to do is not be fooled by the surface. It's like, what actually can get in the way of a loving heart? And it goes back to one of the more potent statements the Buddha made, where he basically defined our, our existence. He said, the heart is naturally, inherently radiant and pure, but it's obscured this natural beauty or radiance or purity of the heart is obscured by visiting defilements. So it's like we take that as a possibility. We don't have to believe it, but we should be open to that being the the way it is. And then it's like no matter 
what the act, the sort of superficial presenting experience is. It's like we stay open to the fact that here in this moment the heart is loving. The heart is connected to some degree. And we practice seeing that even if it's just a faint thread. And so that's one of the reasons to stick with it. I totally get what you're saying about how if we just sort of keep bringing different people to mind and, and sort of follow the uh, intuitively who we want to pay attention to, it can feel very rich. And I, and I think it's good to practice that way at times. But I think it's also good to do this other practice. So like to spend a whole 30 minutes working with yourself or working with somebody who you know you do care about. And don't worry if a lot of resistance comes up or you just remember all the things you don't like about the person. And if it gets really negative, if your mind gets really resistant, resistant, then instead of bringing somebody else to mind, just notice how painful that is and have compassion for yourself. So you would say something like, I really care about this resistance. This resistance is painful and I really care about it. May this heart be free of this pain this resistance. So you'd be basically doing compassion practice for yourself. When that pain subsides, then go back to that person you began with. Okay? Now you could do this the whole week, just with one person yourself or another person. But you may want to practice that other way, where you give your mind some opportunity to bring other people to mind. But to push it this way. And formally, like when I've done this for weeks at a time, you basically have four people you're working with, five categories. You have the easy person, and when that feels rich, then you would go on to um, a good friend, then you'd go on to a neutral person, and then you'd go on to a difficult person, and then you might work with all beings, or a large category of beings. And so, for example, you know, the first category, you might spend two weeks. I think that's what I did. Spend two weeks in my, they call this category the benefactor. It's basically the easiest person. And then I spent a week on a good friend. Then I spent a week on a neutral person. And I didn't change the neutral person. The same person all day long for a week. And then a difficult person. And then all beings. And then there's different ways to do all beings, but generally it was just all beings. Now, of course, we're not practicing that way now. But it, there's, there's, some, uh, there's a really important reason why it's good to push this a little bit. Because we want to realize that the feeling of loving kindness isn't about a particular person. It actually has nothing to do with a particular person. It's an unconditional aspect of the heart. But to begin to get to know this quality of the heart, we use specific people. It's like our gateway to this natural, inherent quality of the heart to be connecting to others, to be connecting with all things. The gateway to that is to just use the particular connections that we have in our life, you know, people we love. So we use that. We take advantage of our conditional relationships, you know, our partners or our, the auntie that took care of us when we were a kid or the mentor that we've had for the last 10 years or teacher that's just been so generous with her time or something like that. We take advantage of those relationships to find this loving part of the heart, but we want to distill 
the quality of the heart that's independent of that particular relationship. So that's why it's good to stick with it, even when it gets dry. Mm -hmm. Alexis? emotion of loving kindness or it may be more uh, the emotion of compassion or joy sympathetic joy or equanimity so there are different aspects of the loving heart depending on sort of the particular circumstances of our life so if we're around suffering or if we're thinking about suffering reflecting on suffering then when we look at that inherent quality of the heart it's going to look like compassion if we're around a lot of joy and happiness then it might look like mudita uh, gladness you know if we're seeing the wholesomeness and goodness in others and or in ourselves then it might be metta so they're just different flavors of the heart but yeah we're absorbing into the heart that's connected as opposed to the heart that feels alienated or apart from See, normally we go through our life uh, with a view that I'm a part. There's me and then there's all of you, the me and the universe. And uh, we may not notice it, but there is a quality of alienation in that experience. We live with alienation almost all the time, or at least to some degree, we feel alienated or apart. Even when we're with people we love. And that's why we get in sort of business-like relationships with our friends and lovers. It's like we're kind of negotiating. I'll be really this way for you if you're this way for me. And it's, it's, an, it's really two alienated people trying to address the pain in their hearts, and maybe not so successfully. And what we're doing is we're trying to go beyond that to an unconditioned, a heart that uh, feels apart, feels whole, as opposed to feeling alienated. And that's really what we're absorbing on. And all of the technique, you know, that, that the sheet describes and that I've been talking about, all this technique is just in the service of waking up, learning to recognize and wake up to sort of... Um, you know, the interesting thing about this absorption is... Um, the mind can, the mind really creates its own universe by what it focuses on. So we could be sitting having a normal day, and then a particular painful memory arises. And if my mind notices that painful memory and focuses on it, it's like the rest of the world disappears for me, right? You know this experience? And we literally become absorbed in that old story about some injustice or some humiliation that we experienced. And we're basically in that box. And so this is a, an unwholesome form of absorption, right? We're absorbing in an unwholesome state. And we can do the same thing with these uh, more inherent states of the heart, the, the states of the heart 
that are not obscured or not uh, distorted by self-centered thinking. And, and so if we can find our way to this loving, open, sensitive, tender heart, and if we can learn to absorb in it, what happens is while we're absorbing in the experience of loving kindness, all of our feelings of alienation, discontentment, uh, all of that is, has to be temporarily let go of. So the Buddha calls this the liberation of the heart. It's a temporary liberation. It's not like what we would call uh, deep insight because once we lose that absorption, we come back to our sort of ordinary patterns. But we feel quite refreshed because for a period of time, the mind was had a very potent vacation from all of our normal patterns of feeling alienated, feeling apart, feeling discontent, feeling not loved, feeling needy, feeling fear, fearful or anxious. We had a real powerful vacation from that. So this is, the, this is what we're learning to do. I said a few minutes ago, we're learning to be mindful of the experience of loving kindness or compassion or equanimity or gladness, one of the aspects of the loving heart. And through the power of absorption, which means we first we discern it, you know, it may be just one little strand in the middle of our busy, distracted mind, you know, and we're repeating the phrases, but we're kind of all over the place, and we come back, we repeat the phrases, we remember the person, and then all of a sudden we notice here in the heart a feeling of expansion or a welling up, and as we notice it, we recognize it as good, like this is wholesome. This, is, this can be trusted. There's nothing bad here. And the way we know that is the more you pay attention to something wholesome, the more it expands. When you, when you pay attention to something unwholesome, it falls apart. If you look at anger with mindfulness, it falls apart as an afflictive state. If you look at loving kindness with mindfulness, it blooms. And so this is what happens. The mind goes into the experience of loving-kindness and of course because it's a pleasant state it's relatively easy to absorb into and last week I mentioned when you feel this uh, openness or upwelling of the heart you can experiment with dropping your remembering the person and even dropping the repetition of the phrases and use your entire attention to notice the feeling of metta, of loving-kindness or compassion or whatever that particular flavor is. And then when that's no longer very strong, then use the supporting things like remembering the person, the repetition of phrases or a phrase to kind of keep you in the game, keep you close. And the neat thing is, even when it's completely barren and dry, just the repetition of the phrase and the remembering the person will keep your mind in relatively safe territory. If you're remembering a person you care about and you're repeating a phrase like, may you be safe, it's less likely the mind is going to get into negative territory. It's like a relatively safe place to keep your mind. And it's like you're in the proximity of loving kindness. Even if it's even if you're not recognizing it, you're sort of like... Uh, chipping away and especially if you don't kind of get into a sort of a mechanical mode where you're just sort of doing it blindly like a robot so each time you repeat the phrase it's like 
you're really um, stating something. You're connecting with the meaning of the words. So you're not just saying it blankly, but you're actually noticing the meaning of the words as you repeat them in the mind. Then you'll be uh, sort of chipping away. And eventually, it will be clearer. Now, eventually, we can't put any amount of time on eventually. (laughs) You know, it may be months of practice. It may be a few minutes of practice. It just depends. It just depends on the conditions. But the more comfortable you are when you sit down to do the practice, it really helps. And um, taking the time, being patient, and really taking the time to remember what's beautiful about the person you're working with, yourself or another person. That really helps. And generally, there will be a way in for a person, like a particular memory, particular image, that really helps you connect with the basic goodness of that person. Like it, where your heart's been touched, it's like a gateway to the fact that you feel connected, the truth that you're, that you're connected with this person. Of course, we're connected with everything, but we start where we, we think we're connected. You know, Mostly we think we're not connected, but we have relationships where we do feel like we are connected, and we start there. Kathleen, did you have a question? Um, I did. Um, this is something that comes up for me is um, the question about is there any, is there a relationship between this practice and action? Um, because you know sometimes um, you know I think of people who I know of who are suffering in some situation, and I you know am doing the metaphrases. And you know, I feel my concern for them, and it, and it just seems like, you know, then I, I start to have this voice of, yeah, you should be doing something about this. You know, you, maybe you need to do this or this. And I, and I just don't know if, um, is it that when your heart is really open, the right action is there, or, you know, what, what do you do about that <laughs> prompting voice that mm-hmm. kind of, well, you want to look at it, and and don't don't just believe it, but really look at where the motivation is. It coming from fear? Like a lot of times we respond to people suffering out of fear, like we're afraid of their suffering not going away. We're sort of uncomfortable with the proximity of their suffering, and so we want to fix it. We want to make it go away because we're uncomfortable with their suffering. So the first step is to really touch a more authentic, if we can, authentic compassion where we feel sensitive, we feel close. We found a way to get close to the suffering that's actually there in this relationship with this person or our own suffering, like to really get close to it. And so that our response to their suffering isn't out of aversion to their suffering, but it's out of feeling connected. And then it's a more useful response. I mean, inevitably, we're going to end up responding because we're irritated by people's suffering. I mean, we'll never say it, and we generally don't notice that. But that's often what we call compassion, is we don't like being around somebody suffering. I was visiting a person in the hospital today, and he was having a really hard time. And I had to really work. Uh, he, he had, some of you know Steve Burt. He had a bad, bad motorcycle accident. 
and they're trying to get him to sit up every day. Um, and today, you know, he was sitting up for over an hour, and that was much longer than he had ever been sitting up. And his pelvis, which has been shattered, um, was really aching. And the nurses were in a meeting, and kept ringing the bell, no one came. And he's just in a lot of pain. And he had pooped and peed, and, you know, just sitting there with that. And, and uh, you know, just feeling helpless here with this person suffering and just wanting to do something. And there wasn't anything to do. And so I had to just practice being relaxed, like being close, being intimate with somebody who was really uncomfortable. And not adding to the suffering by me being uncomfortable because he was so uncomfortable. Because that doesn't help him at all, me wishing he were different or wishing the circumstances were different. It doesn't help him. So I just practiced being relaxed with that uncomfortable situation. It was uncomfortable for me as well as for him. And I, and I could practice being okay with the discomfort. And at least I wasn't contributing to suffering as much. You know? And my mind was clearer then, so I could actually think more carefully, more clearly how to respond. So my response was better. I actually had a couple good ideas. You know, in terms of what to tell the nurse and uh, how to prevent this situation from happening. But it's hard to trust that because we want to go right into action. And so the only difference is we, we value intimacy with the suffering before the action. Because we know that if we're not intimate with the suffering, our action is going to come out of aversion. And it's not necessarily trustworthy what we decide to do. It may look, we can justify that it's good, but we don't really know because our motivation isn't necessarily good. It seems sometimes, I think it's very, very difficult to, to really sift through all that motivation. I mean, that, for the situation I'm thinking of, you know, I have a lot of fear about acting as well, and so it's kind of like, some of my motivation is, well, I can just sit here and be with it, and then I would have to act. You know, but you know what? I, yeah, but how to get to really the bottom of that is very, very difficult. And that's exactly why we practice. Remember, in in its essence, metta and mindfulness practice come together as the Four Noble Truths. This is what we do as human beings. We practice being sensitive to suffering, the cause, the end and the path that leads to the end of suffering. That's all we're doing, all life long, moment by moment. Suffering, how it's arising, how it cannot arise, how it can cease, and how that, how to live in a way that allows the mind to let go, to let suffering cease. And so then in that moment, it's like that's what we practice. That's our barometer for how skillful we are in responding to someone's suffering, is we pay attention to our own suffering like just the relaxation is my heart contracted in being intimate or close to this person suffering or is it relaxed is my action coming out of contraction or is it coming out of relaxation which is the same as intimacy am I connecting or am I being apart from this person suffering and that actually we can we can know that directly as a energetic feeling in the heart once we get a sense of where, how we suffer, the, the direct experience of this body-mind suffering, 
then that's kind of that that's our teacher you don't need any other teacher except to know your heart when it's suffering and when it's not suffering once you really get that then you don't need anything out any other input all you need to do is keep paying attention to whether your heart in this moment is contracted in suffering or opened to non-suffering free of suffering and uh, then our actions are clear because if it's bound up in suffering then the action we engage in is looking at the suffering and finding the end of the suffering so instead of worrying about the world we address the, the heart being bound up first that's our response to the world right now is to, to address that my heart is all bound up it's unclear because of that being bound up so let me just look at that get clear about that as soon as we start opening to the fact that our heart is bound up just the willingness to be mindful of our heart being all contracted it starts to be open up it's to open up because mindfulness of a contracted heart is no longer a contracted heart it's already beginning to open up and then all of a sudden we know more clearly how to respond to the moment so it's not like it's going to take an hour you know this could happen in two seconds you know that before we respond we take a look at the heart which is another way of saying we take a look at the intention or the motivation and we notice it viscerally in the heart like is it all bound up contracted heavy numb hard or is there a feeling of openness and ease which we can trust you know and then whatever action arises out of that intimacy or that ease we trust or that kindness or compassion we trust but it's you know it is hard to talk about it when I say all these things it sounds so easy <laughs> we all know it's not easy well it, it is simple but it's just not easy because we believe our contracted heart we believe what our contracted heart says it says do something and so we want to go right into action and so what we're doing is we're inserting a moment of of seeing or openness before the action that's all we're doing but we're doing that in every moment so in every moment before the action we're inserting a kind of presence so ultimately what we're learning to do is be mindful of our heart we train by being mindful of the breath mindful of sounds mindful of walking mindfulness of walking but we're really training to be mindful of the heart is the heart bound up in greed or fear or anxiety or is it open with loving kindness compassion understanding so that's what we're inserting in every moment we have that moment of awareness and then a response and then a moment of awareness and then a response and in a way they're not even two different moments we just emphasize the moment of awareness and everything else seems to happen on its own just this sort of continue a continuity of knowing the heart and not worrying if it's all bound up because then we just need to know that it's bound up you know open to that just like we would open to somebody else's suffering if our heart is all bound up then the suffering is right here we don't before we even can be aware of other people's suffering we've got suffering right here that we can practice being open to being intimate with mm -hmm. Good luck. <laughs> Maybe one more thought or comment if someone has any question or comment before we go on. 
Mm-hmm. Alexis? Maybe a little louder so they can hear you around the corner. And see, because what we're looking for is this uh, inherent quality of the heart, it doesn't matter what the gateway is, whether we're reflecting on our own anxiety or fear or pain in our heart or reflecting on our dog or our best friend or our teacher. It's just practical or pragmatic. It's just whatever works, you know, whatever connects us or helps us to see this quality of the heart that's connecting, that's open, that's loving. Basically, helps us get beyond our self-centered view. And it's so, when you do the practice, that's why in this practice there's a real invitation towards creativity, like using a particular phrase that really is practical or pragmatic for you in terms of opening the heart or uh, recognizing the open heart, the loving heart, or the particular person, you know, starting with the easy person means we start with the person that seems to work best for us. Not every time, but in general seems to work best, and then we just stick with it as the person we begin with. That's one strategy. The other strategy is sort of what Adam pointed to, which is just to see where your mind wants to begin that day. There's a pluses and minuses for both of those strategies. So why don't we leave it here, and I'd like to say a few things and then offer some reflections that we can uh, maybe do a group sharing again after a few minutes. But I wanted to talk a little bit about this confusion, um, this inevitable confusion between passion and loving kindness. Um, Because we often associate love with passion, something that we care deeply about. And so what is the connection with passion and love? And if, for those of you who've read a bunch in Buddhism, you know that the Buddha wasn't big on passion. In fact, I don't remember if it's Greek or Latin, but doesn't passion actually mean suffering? Yeah, I think it's related to, is it Greek or Latin? But anyway, the root of passion is suffering. So it's sort of interesting. <laughs> and, and you know that um, the way the Buddha talks about the origin of stress or suffering, he usually talks about it in terms of clinging or craving, which is a lot like passion, wanting something. So this this aspect of love is uh, often closely associated with even wholesome states of loving kindness. We have to tease out the desire or the attachment. And so we have to be on the lookout for it. And in the training we call this the near enemy because sometimes attachment or desire masquerades as loving kindness. And it's inevitable. So we just know that. And then as our practice deepens and we're working with a particular person or even all beings, 
we're, we're looking for anything that smells like attachment or desire. Because in its essence, loving kindness is a free gift. So it's this upwelling, this generosity, this immeasurable giving of the heart, free of any aversion. That means free of any fear or free of any neediness. So we're not giving in order to get something back to be recognized. But the, the, uh, the value is in the giving itself. There isn't anything else that's needed. Giving is its own reward. The, the giving of the good wish or the caring, the loving, the patience, the gratitude, the equanimity is it's it's uh, complete in an, in an, in and of itself. So then, what that means is that we want to be on the lookout for any kind of attachment, any sort of uh, like uh, trying to get something from the practice. And you can just think now in your life, you know especially with good friends or partners, inevitably there will be attachment there. So, so just bring to mind somebody you're really close to, like a sibling or a good friend or a lover. And just see if you can get some clarity about uh, the quality of the heart that's more pure and the quality of the heart that's more about a particular relationship. Like, like an arrangement that you have with this person. In one way, when, when we're sort of noticing, like when I bring my wife to mind, when, I, when I'm aware, when I bring to mind that more universal quality of care or love, then what I recognize is that I love when not because of who she is, but because of because that she is, you know, because she's a, a human being who wants to be happy. So that so that's kind of the feeling of the metta. But when I think about her more as my life partner, somebody that I've decided to really live and work with as a partner, well then it has a different flavor. You know, it's it's much more like this ongoing, hopefully at times, skillful negotiation of two conditioned beings and about my perceived needs and how I perceive her needs and how she can take care, help take care of me and how I can help take care of her. And there's nothing wrong with that. And actually it's quite nice when that, all of that work of being a partner and negotiating the needs when that can be infused with this deeper understanding that I'm a human being that just wants to be safe and happy. happy. She's a being that just wants to be safe and happy. I'm surrounded by beings that just want to be safe and happy. And then there's this kind of pervasive tenderness. Now, it may express itself more with when and with me just because I'm pretty proximate to myself and wind's pretty proximate to me, more than you're proximate to me, right? I don't have as many intimate interactions with you as I do with Wynn or with myself. 
but the feeling's very much the same. It's just that these beings, I have a kind of responsibility for, because this is my body and mind, and this is my life partner. But the feeling of tenderness and warmth goes out equally in all directions. And that's really the feeling of metta. But when it feels personal, like the love we feel feels personal, then uh, then we, we want to be on the lookout for our fear or our neediness. Like we're trying, we need something. Like I actually need things from when be there for me. I need her to be sensitive to my uh, fears, for example, my needs. I need her to know them. I want her, and if she doesn't know them, if she forgets them, I, I feel threatened by that. And I usually tell her, <laughs> you know, I need this. I need this. Because when I don't have this, I feel, you know, and then I try to explain how I feel when I don't see this or have this in my life. I think about this with my dad now who's dealing with my mom's Alzheimer's. You know, it's another one of those very intimate relationships and just sort of seeing um, my own fear about my dad, you know, who's just, his heart is just breaking as he's losing his wife, his partner for so many decades. She just, her sort of personality is slipping away. And, uh, and so it's like, uh, at times, it's not so easy uh, to, to be present with my dad's pain and vulnerability. And because I have this need, you know, for my dad to be together. <laughs> and so when he's falling apart, you know, kind of an emotional wreck, it's not easy for me to sort of be intimate with that. And so I, I have a tendency to want to fix it really quickly or to kind of you know, patch it up or something. So this is another place where we can really learn the difference between attachment on the one hand and an unconditional love, what we call metta, on the other hand. And not to judge yourself for having a conditioned love, because that's that comes with the territory. You know, as long as we're an ego being, we have ego needs. And so in our relationships, we'll be negotiating these. But that's, that's kind of a different thing. It's related to metta, but it's different. And so in this practice, that's why we often start, like the, the first person we work with is often somebody not so complicated. So we don't necessarily use our best friend or our partner because they're often confused with this other kind of love, attached love, love that's about our emotional needs. And we bring to mind people where the relationship has more of this universal quality. We just care about this person because they're good and we can recognize their goodness. And in recognizing their goodness, we just care about them. We just want them to be safe and happy just because we see their goodness. You know how that is. We can have this feeling quite strong, people we don't even know, you know, watching the news, and you just hear about somebody who did something really nice. You know, like, uh, what was that, a month ago, somebody jumped down in the tracks of the New York subway. Did you hear about that? You know, somebody, I think, had a stroke or a 
seizure or something, and they fell, you know, before one of the trains was coming in. The guy jumped down and grabbed the person, threw him up, and a couple other people helped that guy get up in time. Or did he get hurt? I can't even remember. I think he got up. Um, but you know, we hear that story, and our heart just gets moved. We, it's like uh, they said in the in the ancient text, the ancient Buddhist text, that the proximate cause for an authentic experience of metta, like really seeing the heart respond in this universal way, is seeing the good. When we see the good in ourselves or in others, that's how the heart responds. So in the preliminary part of the practice, and then in an ongoing way, as you remember the person, you're trying to cut through all of the, you know, neediness and superficiality, and you're trying to see their goodness of this person meaning the moments when their heart responded in an unconditional way as opposed to a self-centered way. And we see this in our kids. You know, you can see these moments of unconditional response from a child, from our partners, from just an ordinary person on the street. This is happening all the time, but we have to develop eyes that can see this goodness. And I think I even said that this could be like homework for us forever, learning to see the good. Like see those moments where a particular being, whether it's herself or another, when a particular being is just responding from goodness, from a non-self-centered place. And it's like, boom. It's like sympathetic resonance. We see it in another and we feel it here. It's so great. That's all that it takes. We just have to recognize it. And this is like one moment of loving kindness is the cause for another moment of loving kindness. It's the same with mindfulness. A moment of mindfulness is the cause for mindfulness. We see somebody who's very present, and all of a sudden, if we're not all of a sudden very present, we start to feel really self-conscious. It's not easy being around somebody who's really present without feeling either really present are really self-conscious. And this is the same with metta. If we're around somebody with who in this moment is in that universal or that uh, unconditioned loving state, then we, our heart tends to respond in the same way. We see the beautiful and then we become beautiful. The heart becomes, uh, relates in this beautiful way. So let's just take a, we have a 10 minutes left. Let's just take a few minutes and maybe we can just reflect on moments in our lives when we saw the beautiful in ourselves, in our own heart, or around us in somebody else. So just take a, we'll take a minute of silence. Just open up to your life long ago, a few minutes ago, and just see what comes to mind, moments of seeing the beautiful.
thoughts come to mind? Any examples? been in the proximity of unconditional love? It seems hard to distinguish what's really unconditional and what has other motives. See, here's the trick. There may be those other motives there. It isn't so much that there's a saint next to you. It's more that in this moment you have saintly eyes that isn't confused by all the other motives and just simply sees in yourself or in another being the purity of the heart. So there may be other motives there in that other person or there may be other motives here in your heart. But in this moment, your eyes, I'm not talking about your actual eyes, uh, your sort of intuitive eyes, are, is knowing, seeing the unconditioned love, the pure love. So that's, so it's more about the seeing, the recognition, than about what's actually going on. Does that make sense? Like the, what came to my mind was, um, I used to work at Park Day School in Oakland, California, back in the early 80s. And uh, I left um, to move to another place. And uh, the kindergarten teacher gave me a hug. I had a little going away party for me. And she gave me a, a going away hug. And, you know, just somebody I'd worked with for several years, and I really liked her, but didn't have any personal social relationship with this person, just a colleague at work. But in that moment, for whatever reason, when she gave me a going away hug, uh, my perception was of unconditional acceptance and love. And you know, she's just an ordinary person. But in that moment, now I don't know, you know, where she was at, but what I know is what I felt or what I saw. And it really touched me. And, and uh, I, I was affected by it. And even here in this room at times, you know, like uh, the neat thing about being in a space right now with this group of people right now is that a lot of us don't know each other, but there's a certain warmth and safety right now in this room that we can feel. And uh, it's, it's like we can tune into the the sort of uh, meta quality, even in the space like not here, or you might you might have been you know at the Twins game when they were in the pennant or the World Series you know a number of years ago, or when there was just a lot of happiness, or at church when people were singing, and you can just even in group settings, you the mind the heart can discern this goodness, so it's not like uh, it needs even special circumstances. It's really just a matter of discernment, of seeing, not getting confused by the other motivations that might also be around. 
but really learning to recognize this aspect of the heart because it's always around. So other examples that people have, Lori? Um, I think of my mom and I think that there have probably been other many years in my life when if she would say something to me like, oh, you look so nice if you're a earring uh, when it would just drive me nuts. And she says that now and it's just, it's just like, it's just all this love coming out. It's coming out in that phrase, but I'm not confused by that phrase. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the phrase might be that have always been the same. It's just what you're seeing is different. Yeah, thanks. Alexis, did you have another thought? And then Carol? Um, yeah, I remember one very small adventure. Um, driving miles to work and the ramps were absolutely The ramps? The ramps. Uh-huh. And then she had herself stuck there and I thought, well, this is it. A little bit louder, please. A citizen who came by and was stuck and he had his chains and pulled me out within five or ten minutes, um, took me all the way up the ramp, and I was on my way to Kansas. I made it in to take care of uh, the nursing station. Uh, I, I don't know him. I've never seen him again. I don't know why he was out there in the midst of this storm. Um, but he was more than happy Thanks. How about we have a couple minutes left? So let's just change it from seeing the good to being intimate with suffering, like somebody being intimate with your pain, or you being intimate with somebody else's pain, or you seeing somebody else intimate with somebody else's pain. So this is just another expression of the unconditioned heart, the heart free of self-centered fear. When we see a heart that is intimate with suffering. So just think if you can remember instances where you've seen your heart or another's heart intimate, unafraid of suffering. have time for a couple of comments, but if you have any memory or thought that you'd like to share. Nicole? I just remembered that my, my, my very good friend was dying, and the last time I saw him, when he had cancer, and he was really suffering bad, and, and and just for a moment in that visit, we just looked at each other. And I don't know how to put it to words, really, but it was like all the... I was afraid of him dying and me losing him, and I know he was afraid to die. And it's um, like we both just knew that was happening, but we didn't, want to, we didn't talk about it, we didn't verbalize it, but it was all there, just in this one... Yeah. Yeah. 
And the neat thing about the way Nicole described the situation is there wasn't any attempt to deny or resolve the fact that you didn't want to lose him, he didn't want to die. But in that moment, it's like, it's like the, I don't know if you want to use the word transcended or drop beneath, that the, something else was uh, happening that sort of put that fear of losing, fear of one's death, put it into per, perspective. It's like a, a feeling that, uh, a recognition that something beyond those self-centered concerns that we can touch. And this is that immeasurable quality that I mentioned last week. And it's immeasurable in the sense that it puts our conditioned, this life we live on, a, on this conditioned level, it puts it into perspective. It doesn't deny the fact that there's an ego and there's a sort of relationships, and but it, it puts it into perspective. If this is all we know, this conditioned realm, the ego realm, then we're then our fear and our neediness is quite dramatic, and uh, it's all we know. So it's like we're totally attached. But when the more we touch this quality of heart, the immeasurable quality of heart, the less tight the grasp on our fears, our needs. It kind of allows the neediness and the fear to be what it is without making it more than what it is. It's just fear. It's just loss. It's just the ordinary, very real pain of loss, of letting go. But there isn't this self-centered desperation in, in those uh, states. So we'll leave it here. Next week I'll talk a little bit more about the four qualities. I mentioned them last week. So we have seeing the good. This is about metta. And then there's uh, proximity with suffering, which we call compassion or karuna, and then proximity with joy or happiness, which is mudita. So we can reflect about those experiences too, the unconditioned heart that's around joy or happiness. So no envy, no, oh, why not me? Why didn't I win the lottery or whatever? And then equanimity. So these are the four qualities or the four ways we tend to recognize this unconditioned heart, the heart not conditioned by self-centered thinking, not under the influence of self-centered thinking. And remember, we're just catching glimpse because our self-centered thinking is so pervasive. Don't expect to have this great window, this great opening, you know, where all of a sudden there's no self-centered thinking for hours at a time. Just little whiffs, little glimpses of a heart not bounded by self-centeredness, self-centered thinking. And define various skillful means. And this particular technique we're using, the instructions that I handed out last week, this is just one technique, one formal technique. But on our own, we want to discover a, a handful of creative ways that work for us to wake up to this universal quality of the heart. And we'll share those together next week. Um, so let's leave it here, and I'll just uh, mention a few things that you might be interested in. Kamala Masters and Steve Armstrong will be giving our monthly talk on Sunday night, and they're wonderful teachers, so if you're free on Sunday, you might want to join us. It will probably be crowded, but they're really nice to get to know. They are only here once a year, 
So that will be Sunday at 7. It's drop-in. You don't need to register. And there's still spaces for the day-long retreat on Saturday, 9 to 6 p.m. Please join us for that. You can sign up in the entranceway if you'd like. It's a chance to do some metta practice all day long. What a nice way to spend a Saturday, walking and sitting and just repeating loving thoughts over and over again for whoever you want to send them to. So consider that if you're free on Saturday. We'll have our quarterly gathering next on Sunday, July 8th. That's a nice time to meet the community that practices at Common Ground. We have a potluck. I give a little talk on the three refuges, and then we do a short ceremony. It takes about 15 minutes. We'll repeat the precepts of non-harming, etc., and the three refuges. So those are some things that are coming up. And there will be an intro class in July for people who would like more instruction on the mindfulness practices. And if you're not on our email mailing list, we're doing more and more of our communication via that email mailing list. You can just email the center and ask to be put on that email mailing list. And then you'll get updates about programs and other things that are going on at the center. Any other announcements for the group? So thanks again for coming, everyone. Have a good week, and I'll see you next Thursday. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.